Welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you earn the mug that says world's greatest dad. My name is Jeff Gervitz. I am your host. I am a dad and I am taking a deep breath. Actually, I'm taking a physiological sigh. Let me walk you through this. Maybe you've heard about it on things like the Huberman podcast. What you're going to do is take a big breath in through your nose and hold it for a second. And before you let go, take another sniff of air in and really fill the tank and then sigh it all out. Ah, okay. We're going to do this two more times. Okay, go ahead. Take a breath in, hold, sigh it out. Okay, and one more time. And I will tell you why, because the research says that in as little as three cycles, you can noticeably see or feel a reduction in stress. Breathing is a powerful tool and it's right there for us. It's accessible and Maybe for that reason, it's gone through a bit of a renaissance in the past few years as people have rediscovered just how incredible it can be when it comes to reconnecting with their bodies, dealing with anxiety, stress, being more present. It's a great tool. You would think we'd all be great breathers just by virtue of repetition, but that's, of course, not how things work. And that's why I brought on Michael Watts to today's episode. Michael is a coach and director of high performance. He's worked with professional soccer players at the highest level in the UK and now has a more diversified portfolio of elite athletes. He is a dad and he is an expert on, and I quote, functional breathing and its impact of recovery and performance through continued research and application of conscious breathing practices. On this episode, I'm going to speak with Michael about the skills shared by high-performance athletes and high performers in every other realm with a particular focus on managing stress and anxiety. And of course, we're going to talk about breathing. Before we begin, a quick reminder to visit dadstrength.com and sign up for our newsletter, which contains recaps of dad wisdom from our weekly calls and quick actionable thoughts on focus and health and some bonus stuff like a dad joke. Now for my interview with Michael Watts. Let's get into it. Okay, so, you know, your kids are on track anyway to follow in your footsteps. And I think you originally thought about following in your dad's footsteps. Yeah, I did originally. If I went way, way back, dad was a big influence in my life growing up and really seeing a dad that would wear the suit, go to work, be a businessman, go to his office, come back, was something that probably I was very proud of, of my dad and was inspiring me. And that's what I thought I was going to do and wanted to do. So without really trying to figure out my own path, I just thought I'll follow that. And when I finished high school and went to college, I signed up, my very first degree was actually a business degree. So I signed up and I was two years into the business degree. And then a buddy of mine said, do you want to go to the US and coach soccer for six weeks, part of this program? And I said, yeah, I'll I'll do that. Want to go to the US. Came over here, was in New York, spent six weeks and fell in love with coaching. I'd always had a major sort of interest in soccer, played it all my life, played it through college. Even my dad actually coached me growing up. And then I came back from the US and it planted two big seeds in my mind. One, I wanted to live in the US. 
And secondly, I wanted to pursue a career in coaching. So I continued to finish my degree. So I had, I got my degree in business management, but pivoted from almost trying to pursue a, a business career into a health and wellness career and, and saw a job advertised for a, a health and fitness club in the UK. Didn't require any qualifications. They were just looking for the personality in order to, to go and work with people. So basically I applied what I'd learned in that six weeks in the US of how to coach kids during my interview. And then I got the job and that's what really put me on the, the pathway in, in health, wellness, and ultimately my, my career in performance with professional athletes as well. So I think as kids, we grow up and we don't really know what we want to do. And if we're lucky enough at some point we meet somebody or something happens in our life, which, which really enlightens us to say, this is my pathway and this is, this is what I should be doing. What was it about coaching that you remember really resonating with you? Where did you start to go? Oh, this is, I want to do more of this. So we were coaching soccer and it was more based around like the technical side of soccer. Whereas now my expertise are more in the human performance element of physiology, sports science, that kind of thing. But I think the thing that really hooks me was ultimately helping somebody and seeing them develop and having that desire to want to keep doing that and seeing how impactful you could be on somebody's life and how influential you could be in a very positive manner. And I think that was the hook for me to say, I want to be active. I want to be pursuing a career in something that I really believe in and I want to help people. And still to this day, sort of 20 years later from that summer, 20 years ago in New York, I still do it to try and help people. Like I do a lot of things still and don't always charge people because either a project will interest me or somebody interests me in the respect of, I think I can help this person. And I still believe in a little bit like you, you give and put out and, and it does come back in the world. So yeah, I think it would be helping people and, and seeing them flourish. Now, when you think about the way your dad coached you, what's been the through line on that? What, what sort of continues? So dad coached me from a very early age in soccer. And I would say he was more of a facilitator than a coach, if that makes sense. He was there and present. So he would be there for training and he would be there for uh, game day. And I always remember him being present. And he wasn't necessarily coaching as like the technical elements of soccer because that wasn't his skill set. He was very organized, had high standards. Discipline as well was a big thing for my dad. And I probably saw that trait come through to me of organization, being prepared, being disciplined and having a desire to want to achieve your best. So I'd say that would be the thread that I probably learned from my dad. And he, even though he was super busy, he traveled a lot, he was working a lot. I always remember him being there and present. And we're talking before mobile phones as well here. So there were less distractions where he would come to practice and he would be there. He had a bit of game and he would be there. So I definitely learned in a positive manner that some of those skill sets around just being organized, being disciplined, putting processes in place was really sort of gearing up and, and leading to success. I'm hearing two things from that. There's the structures and systems, which we, we hold ourselves to, we organize, but sort of become 
just all of our default settings. And then, you know, the presence thing is something I think a lot about. And, I, you know, the coaches that, that work with me, I, you know, I really believe their, their job as experts is to learn and pursue mastery, go after all this. But in the moment, that all sort of sits aside and their job is to be present. Everything that flows out of them is pretty organic. Is that consistent with your experience? Yeah, definitely. You, you've, you've mentioned three words there that really resonate with me. A default setting where we would start to think about the habits or the processes that we form. And I truly believe that they build resilience. And if you have these processes in place in your life as a, a person, whether you're a, a dad, a mom, a brother, a sister, whatever you might be, having these processes build resilience. And I'm very process driven. And from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed, I have these anchors. And when I'm at home, they're easy to do. But when I'm on the road, I do a few. And I think they help me navigate the day, mitigate stress, become more focused. What's an example of an anchor for you? Every morning I'll do some kind of movement to, just to help with blood flow, lymphatic flow. And I'm big into my breathing as well. So every morning I can move and breathe and I can do that anywhere. I can do it on top of a mountain, in a hotel, at home. And all that would look like is if I've got a foam roller, I'll foam roll and stretch. And then I'll do some breath work where I keep it nasal, make it nice and slow and light and nice and deep and just anchor myself. I've got other things going on like my ice bath in the morning, making sure I nourish myself properly, seeking natural light. So I have these things that some are non-negotiable and some like can come and go depending on the situation. And then as I get out throughout the day, like making sure I'm active and not sedentary, using a stand-up desk a little bit and making sure I get outside and not always be stuck behind the desk. Filling my calendar with not just meetings and, and things I need to do for work, but also break here, work out here. And I found that really, really helps me. Otherwise, if I don't book it in, it doesn't happen, so to speak. So I'm pretty process driven. The other big word you mentioned there was mastery. And there's a time for it and a place. And we're often led to think it's all about grind, 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 just head down, butt up and get on with it. If you start thinking about that, there's a time and a place to do that, but it's finite. You burn yourself out and you wear yourself out. So we start thinking about mastery and you start thinking about these moments or portions of your life. And I think about these portions of your life of key pillars, how you nourish yourself and how you hydrate yourself, how you move, how you breathe, how you think, and then how you recover. And these things, you're not necessarily mastered them. You're on this pathway to mastery. So you might find someone who's really dialed in with the nutrition, but the breathing's not great. And it's just where you are on that journey. So I think that's a big, big point to think about mastery. And you never get there. Like you're always working toward it. And if you start to put these processes in place, if you start to master that journey, then I think it brings you to that big, big word that you said of presence, like being present in the moment and thinking about if I'm on a task, can I be present with it? And, and we talk about focus, concentration, and attention. Like how long can you focus on that one thing and how long is that attention span? And as humans, we're not getting very good at that because we're getting distracted very easily. So 
being present is a massive tool. And I think as a parent, especially being present with your kid is huge. And you probably notice it with your child at that age around five, six, seven, they started to notice when you're not present, if you're on your phone or if you're distracted, they will actually call you out on it. And all your kid really needs is you to be present and they don't really care what you're doing. I think they just want you to be present. You know, I have the same thoughts and anxieties around screen time as I think any parent. And my son had a cartoon on and you know what? I just, I nestled in next to him. We both watched it and, and it was great. It wasn't a distracted time. And I think, you know, kind of what, what we were talking about before, whether it's Lego or coloring or whatever it is, these are moments that make it, I think, emotionally easier to enter that level of presence. I'm going to say another word that I suspect you will like, and that is, is resilience. And wh- when you describe these multiple uh, supporting qualities, hydration, sleep, buffering time, actually showing like, like walking the walk that this exercise time and this downtime is just as important as anything else. And that's why it lives in my calendar. All of these build a more resilient system and allow us to more easily overcome whatever might throw us off our game. Yeah, absolutely. So, so if we think about resilience, stress is a normal part of being a human being and it will come and it will come and it will come. And what we want to do as a human being is be able to take the stress, deal with the stress, and then get back to a homeostasis in terms of physiology or just an equilibrium. Like we, it's going to knock us off and we come back, knock us off and we come back. And that little bit of poison, or we call it a eustress, is a good thing because it can make us more resilient. So for example, if we take a eustress of cold exposure, which is pretty popular at the moment. You go in the cold plunge, you get in the cold shower, it creates a stressor. The stressor is a physiological response of increasing your heart rate, increasing the release of certain hormones like cortisol, norepinephrine, and the body becomes stressed. That's a little bit of poison that over time, if you keep doing that, it creates resiliency. Mm -hmm. So it's an example of a lot of our stresses are psychological stressors or mental stressors. And I think the big thing that I'm seeing now is when these stresses come along is to recognize it and understand how it triggers you before we actually go into trying to combat it or mitigate it. I think a few years ago, we were talking more about here's a stress, do something about it. So for example, I'm really stressed. I'm driving my car. Somebody cuts me off. I'm super stressed. Like I literally go into that fight or flight response. Okay. Breathe, breathe. Okay. And we'll do a very evidence-based breathing intervention of six breaths per minute, five in, five out, pause. I'll do that. Okay. And that then sort of triggers the vagus nerves and it activates that parasympathetic side. I believe that there's a couple of steps in between before you go into action of recognize what's stressing you, sit with that emotional feeling, and then go into the breathing pattern. Otherwise, our body can't really understand what's the trigger. And I think it's the trigger that causes the stress. And to build resilience, we need to understand what the trigger is and then what to do about it. Go further upstream. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a little bit like never getting to the root cause. And I think that's a, I'm a big believer now of root cause. If something's not right or something's off with you, you need to understand the why. 
And once you understand the why, you can, as you say, go upstream and, and, and try and deal with it. Surprises that throw us off kilter are not that surprising when we look at our, our life and our week. If you know that you have an emotional reaction to uh, getting cut off or being late or whatever it is in traffic. If I were a betting man, uh, you know, I might say there's a high statistical likelihood of this happening. How do we get ahead of that? So you hit on a big point there. We can start to identify stress and we can monitor stress and, and we can do it either subjectively or objectively. So how stressed am I? Like, like we, we've become pretty desensitized as humans to actually be able to check in with our own body. So I think a very good way subjectively is if something triggers you, how quickly do you go from the state you're in to, to stress or angry? Does it happen really easily or does it take a lot for you to sort of get into that state? If you're being triggered very, very quickly and you're becoming very stressed or anxious or angry very quickly, you know that you've got a pretty low tolerance. You know that your, your, your bucket's pretty full and it doesn't take much to, to sort of tip it over. So that's a good subjective method. So as you go day to day, it might be the kids are misbehaving or they're screaming, something triggers you, see how you cope. And if you don't cope very well and you get triggered, you sort of know that you're probably chronic levels of stress are very, very high. So you're probably in a sympathetic drive. So that fight or flight response, that sympathetic drive. If you don't get triggered, you probably know you've got resiliency or a nice strength and balance towards your autonomic nervous system. So if you think about what the science says, autonomic nervous system is almost this governor of our fight or flight response or rest and digest. Sympathetic, fight, flight, parasympathetic, rest or digest. They're both always on. And when we need to be stressed, we trigger that sympathetic. And when we need to be more in a relaxation state, we trigger that parasympathetic. Problem with modern day person is we're chronically stressed physically, mentally, through nutrition, lack of sleep, how we breathe, et cetera, et cetera. So that sympathetic drive is always on. And if that sympathetic drive is always on, it's like being in an ice bath 24 seven. Like it's the same physiological response. Sympathetic response is the same as being in, in an ice bath. And if you sit in there all the time, we know from the research now as a, an objective monitor, heart rate variability or HRV decreases and a constant low HRV is linked to many bad outcomes such as uh, metabolic diseases, cancers, and many other ailments and illnesses. So we don't want to be chronically stressed and we can either use technology or we can subjectively just check in and see where we are. We'll often talk about the effects of chronic stress in terms of, of pathologies, but you have a unique perspective and I'd love to hear you talk about the impact of chronic stress on performers and particularly on, on elite performers when we look at things through sort of an athletic lens. Yeah, so we always think about you, you have to put energy in, in order to put energy out. And if you think it's, if I'm going to perform at my best, that's the expression of everything I'm doing. So whether it's an athlete or an actor or a singer or some of the people I work with, they have to go on their stage, whether it be a field for a soccer player, the ring for a boxer, the stage for a singer, whatever it might be, they get on their stage to perform. And we see the performance. 
and the performance happens and then they leave and then they perform again and again and again. And that very much is a process that's taking from the body. And they have to then train and they have to practice in order to keep performing. And all these things are taken from the body. And you can think about that as that's causing stress in a good way for practice, hopefully, because you need a bit of stress in order to develop. So that's causing stress. So then we need to look at the other side and say, okay, how do I recover? What do I do in order to perform at my best, whether it be practice or competition? How do I recover in order to go again, in order to have the right amount of energy to give the right amount of output? And that's where we start to look at how do I maybe look at that parasympathetic balance? What can I do in order to push my body into there? And when we start thinking about recovery, it could be a bit more mechanical, such as I want to work on my muscles, tendons, fascia, et cetera, et cetera, through stretching or massage, manual therapy, compression tights, pneumatic compression. Like we could look at it more mechanical or we could look at it more in sort of a psychophysiological of how do I get my brain from that like stress state? Like you go on stage or you train you're triggered into sympathetic, which is great. You're alert, you're in a go state. When you're not on stage and you're not training and you're recovering, you need to be in the relaxation state. And that's where we see people stuck because they can't get into that parasympathetic. So really, really good high level ways to recover are how you breathe, how you nourish yourself, how you hydrate, how you sleep, how you socialize, and your sense of community, and then just generally what down-regulating practices you have, especially sort of in the evening as you sort of approach that bedtime. In your experience, what is the longest level of sustained attention and real performance someone can offer before they start to show signs of fatigue or sort of becoming more rigid cognitively, being less responsive? Yeah, and I think this depends on a personality trait as well. So if someone's an introvert, an extrovert, an introverted extrovert, it can be very, very different for the individual. So I'd I'd say it's very, very individual. Funnily enough, I think there was a a bit of research done by one of the, the big companies around attention span and it was less than a goldfish now. So we with something like seven or eight seconds. But then there's something that we talk about and some people believe in it called this flow state of how you get the body and the mind in a flow state where you concentrated. And we've we've probably been there, whether it be academically or athletically, where you're just in this flow and time passes. And I think that's where most high performers are trying to get, especially when they're performing and when they're training. And in order to get into that flow state, there's many, many different ways and there's many, many different beliefs, but it's really becoming focused and present in that one thing you're doing and not distracted. So I think flow state is a huge, huge factor. The time and how long you can stay in there, I think it depends on the individual and then the cost to that individual after that state again, depends on the individual. So for example, if you're an introverted extrovert, as in you prefer to be in your own, you don't like to socialize that much, 
But given the situation, you can go and perform and sing in front of 50,000 people, or you can go and present in front of 10,000 people. But once that's done, you're super depleted. Whereas an extrovert loves that. Like they take energy and they build and they go and, it, and it's what really helps them thrive. So I think, I think it depends on the individual. And this is where a lot of our science is moving now into personality traits and DNA traits to understand like almost what is the environment for that person. Because we know that basically the environment pulls the trigger, but like DNA or personality trait is sort of what you've got. And you're trying to work with that in order to say, okay, how am I going to thrive most when I'm trying to perform, trying to stay in a flow state, trying to recover, like what do I need? And if you're somebody who's an introvert and you're trying to recover, you don't need 20 people around you. You're literally probably better off in your own space, in your own head, and you'll thrive and you'll recover. And I would imagine if uh, in that example, we're sort of, you know, we have an, an introvert who's in a very public sort of space when they perform, they're going to use internal tools. Well, first of all, as you described, a flow state is, is this sort of aspirational thing people bring up all the time, but is ultimately constrained by your ability to focus and probably notice when your attention is is wavering and then and bring it back and probably other ways to re-regulate in those moments. You work mostly with, you know, with footy players who are going to their periods of being very on and their moments yep. of being able to re-regulate breathing, tension. What might be, so if someone's listening to this and they're saying, I'm a little, a little angsty right now, or I'm a little, you know, sympathetically driven, what might be a, a breathing-based tool to recalibrate? Okay, great. Into practical application. So if we're thinking about these states from sympathetic to parasympathetic, and there's a very good model called the polyvagal theory. And very, very simply, it looks at there's sort of two parasympathetic states and one sympathetic state. And if we went way, way back into like our reptilian brain and take a crocodile, for example, he's got two states, kill or literally sit doing nothing. And that's what a crocodile does. Kill, sympathetic, sit, doing nothing, eyes popping out of the water, parasympathetic. Turns it on when he needs to. And at the other time, sat there conserving energy. As a species, we develop something a bit more social. So this other sort of parasympathetic drive where we seek community in order to survive. And I think if we think about that, it's like how quickly can I get back into that parasympathetic state, but I don't want to shut my body down. I don't want to be like a, a reptile of shut down, kill, shut down, kill. That's not a human. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to get into the parasympathetic state where I can think clearly, but have a relaxed heart rate and, and be relaxed. If I go into shutdown state, that's overload and my body's just said, enough is enough. I'm shutting you down. You're done. And that is like a chronic level of stress. So if we think about it, stress drives a sympathetic fashion of breathing. And it's usually a dysfunctional breathing pattern of fast, noisy, high in the chest and with the mouth. Sympathetic drive is triggered straight away. Sympathetic drive is that kill state of the reptilian brain where it's, okay, I'm single focused. I'm in this one drive and I really can't focus on anything else. I'm in it. And it's required at certain times, 100%. Then I want to draw myself back to say, I need to take myself out of tunnel vision and I need to draw that panoramic view 
and get myself into a point where I can relax slightly. I would love it if you're into it to, for you to just lead us through uh, a simple breathing exercise to, to re-regulate something people can apply in traffic before they walk through the door, whatever's going to help them show up. Yeah, absolutely. So we're doing something and something triggers us, something or someone triggers us and we feel angry or stressed or anxious and our breathing will change either consciously or subconsciously it will change. So we spoke about understand what's triggering you, number one. Secondly, sit with the emotion and, and feel what it is. So is it stress? Is it anger? Is it anxiety? So understand the trigger, understand the feeling, and now let's go and do something about it. So we'll take a normal breath in through the nose, a normal breath out through the nose, and then take this natural pause. And I just want you to sit there with normal breath in through the nose, normal breath out, natural pause. And at this point, I just want you to focus on the air that enters and the air that leaves the nose. You can place the tongue towards the roof of the mouth, but just keep a focus on breath in, breath out, pause. Breath in, breath out, pause. And then every time you exhale, I just want a deeper sense of relaxation. So breath comes in, breath goes out, relax, relax, pause. Breath in, breath out, and pause. And now we're going to lean a little bit more and like really concentrating and slowing this down. So let's go for four seconds in. One, two, three, four, four seconds out. One, two, three, four, and pause. Really important that we pause. Inhale, two, three, four. Exhale, two, three, four, and pause. Inhale for four, two, three, four. Exhale for four, two, three, four. So try and keep that tempo going. So you've got a few things going on. Tongue's in the roof of the mouth. We've got a cadence going on of four, four, pause. We're relaxing every time we exhale. And then just think about now, every time I inhale, I get this three-dimensional expansion of the lower part of my rib cage. So that expands. So think about breathing into your back. Really good little tip, breathe into my back and think, breathe in, breathe out, pause. Every time I breathe in, the air goes in the nose, back of the throat, into the back. And every time I exhale, it's going to go slowly out and the shoulders relax down and sit with that. And then I would say you do a minimum of six breaths, take you about one minute and then see how you feel, check in. If you're still triggered, keep going. If you feel okay, okay, off you go again. And then to build resiliency, that little breathing pattern that we spoke about, every time you think about your breathing, whether you're triggered or not triggered, do it. And that is going to start pushing the needle back to a normal breathing pattern which then pushes the needle away from that sympathetic response. When you're triggered, do it. Or if you ever think about your breathing during the day, do it and start to restore a functional breathing pattern for your health and your wellness. Awesome. That's nice. And I, I appreciate the fact that you, you actually took us through several cycles. You know, I, I think we have to kind of plant these reminders for ourselves. Absolutely. Throughout our life, right? They put these prompts in. And what I'm hearing is you describe that as, yes, we are breathing, but we are also noticing 
there's that that softening of the tunnel vision and there's there's an attention to the the physical experience of breathing and a whole bunch of checks from the top of the breath to the bottom of the breath to the natural hold to where there's expansion where there's movement where there's sensation and that i think is inherently calming even in itself consciously thinking about your breath has a calming effect and then if we can start to lean a little bit more on is it with the nose is it slow is it deep there's a lot of science around each one as an element saying yes it's going to make you more parasympathetic and you know what that physiological response is to being more parasympathetic so you mentioned fight or flight and also freeze yeah which you know and movies have us convinced that Almost everybody is going to immediately go into fight. And I think the majority of people actually freeze. Yep. And then there's the rest and digest. And I can't remember if it's from polyvagal theory, but the term, the parasympathetic state has been described as tend and befriend. Yeah. So one's called a dorsal and one's called a vagal tone. So they've split it up into those. And yeah, the, the tend and befriend. And the reason we freeze is because we've not built resilience and we've not trained it. Mm-hmm. Like our military responders don't freeze once they're trained because they've trained it. So they'll go into that highly sympathetic kill state. And when they need to, they go back to parasympathetic because they do their breath work, they're well-trained, et cetera, et cetera. If we get put into situations where we're not trained or don't have a resiliency, the tendency can be to freeze. And another big example when we start talking about our health and our autonomic nervous system is I've had people where we look at heart rate variability and we all have a baseline and the baseline is very personal to us and it will fluctuate depending on our stresses. If we're stressed, it goes down. If we're more recovered, it will creep up. In some cases, I've seen it three times, it will creep up and up and up and up. So someone's almost become highly parasympathetic. It's almost like, oh, this is wonderful. Like they're highly parasympathetic, like amazing. There's actually the body shutting down you've become so sympathetic, your body shuts down. And a very good example would be a baby that cries. If you leave a baby to cry, they will stop crying. And it's because they've become so stressed through crying that then they shut themselves down. And that's not necessarily building resilience. You're just training somebody to say, get so stressed that you just shut your body down versus what tools can you use in order to help soothe yourself and bring yourself back. Yeah, we often fail to appreciate the difference between the external outcome that we're, we're shooting for and what's actually happening and whether that's, that's encouraging it or they're just sort of ticking some boxes without the deeper sort of why behind it. Absolutely. Let's talk about Ted Lasso. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and actually, now, now folks are watching, uh, welcome to Wrexham as well. You have actually had the experience of working with an English football team that's been promoted. Yes, I have. So I was at um, Norwich City when we got promoted to the Premier League. Can't reference the year, but it was a really successful time. And we had a very good dynamic within the, the locker room. And it was one of these times where everything came together and maybe overachieved, but definitely surprised a lot of people. We got up to the Premier League and it's still a moment in sport that I I still think about a lot and really cherish. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about your experience as a coach and the kind of signs and signals that you were sensing that, that gave you a feeling like, okay, this is on track. 
So I've been in the other situation as well, where I've been with a team that's been relegated. So I've, I've had both ends of the stick, so to speak. I think there's less conflict in a happy environment, for sure. More unity and cohesion between people. And one of the biggest things I would say is that the athletes that are not necessarily playing still contribute in a huge way in terms of their presence and their input to the team. And I I think back to some of the guys that weren't necessarily playing, like amazing people that brought so much to the locker room, even though they weren't playing. And then I think about the flip side, a different team when we weren't doing well, this locker room was not great. It was a bad environment. It was divided and split, pretty toxic. And there was a lot of conflict. So I've seen like the two parallel opposites, but really the unity of one group working towards the same mission was was an amazing thing to see. And we had some amazing characters as well in that locker room. You know, you speak about cohesion, but what was really interesting for me to hear was that even players who didn't have such an active role or such an obviously active role still contributed. And when I think about what presence means to me, we often, anyone who's read more than a a few self-help books who is on the self-improvement track tends to compare themselves in the present to some future iteration where we will have all the skills and all the knowledge. And I think of presence as working with what you have in that moment. And, you know, as a coach or as a teammate, I can imagine bringing that attention and support and seeing, okay, I know I've been so, you know, intimate with you in the sense of watching your performance and watching your process. I know what you've been working on personally and what's important to you. And when you look up and you see me, I'm aware of, of a little nuance, a little change. And we both kind of feel more human for having recognized that. That's what I imagine in these scenarios. Yeah. And I think there's a big word in there, ego. And I I actually had a conversation with one of the players I work with at Norwich uh, yesterday, and we were talking a lot about this. And he recommended a couple of books, which I bought. I think one was called The Monk Who Sold the Ferrari and The Buddha Jeff and Me, I think is the other one. And we spoke very much about ego and how that ego can get in the way. And I think about those athletes that weren't necessarily having game time on the field, they almost controlled their ego to say, okay, the team's been successful. I'll find another way to contribute here and not be ego driven to say, I should be playing, I should be doing this. And then all of a sudden that one person become a little bit toxic, influence some other people. And that's where the locker room starts to to fall into a little bit of a split or divide and and things start to go south a little bit. Those little details feel so subtle. And I would say you can't be chronically in in a sympathetic state to even be able to assimilate that information or contribute to that environment. Yeah, exactly. And a big part of it is enjoying what you're doing. And if you're in a sympathetic state, how are you ever going to actually stop, be present, realize what you're actually doing and enjoy it? And I think professional sport, yes, it does have a a lot of pressure and a lot of stress, but ultimately the career is pretty short, unless you're Tom Brady, goes on forever, but the career is pretty short and before you know it, it's done. And I think reflecting back to say, I trained every day, 
I got to work out every day. I got to learn new skills and interact with new people and be educated on different things and perform at a spot I loved in front of thousands of people. Like that's amazing. It is amazing to do, but it comes with its pressures. But I think a big part of it is being present in the moment, enjoying it and understanding how you add value and not letting your ego drive you to say, I should be doing this. I should be earning this. I should be getting this. Because ultimately, if you do what you love doing and strive to do it better and better and better, I think the rewards come. And this is a big thing of process versus outcome. Like if you want to win an Olympic gold medal, just thinking, I want to win a medal, I want to win a medal is not going to win you the medal. Like the day-to-day, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute is what wins you the medal. And, and a lot of successful athletes I've worked with talk about process versus outcome. Yeah, and the other big word I hear in this is appreciation. Final question. So knowing what you know about high performance, about developing athletes over the long term and what it actually takes to create a phase shift in their performance, what do you take from that and apply as a dad? Oh, so sort of jokingly said at the start there about gearing my boys up to be like world-class athletes. I think there's three things we can train and we talk about training the mind, the body and the craft. And training the craft is that skill of if you're going to be a tennis player, learning how to hit a ball. If you're going to be a cyclist, learning how to ride a bike properly, handling skills, et cetera, et cetera. And you need a technical person to teach you how to do that. Training the mind and training the body is, is as a performance expert, is really my realm of what, what I did and what I do is help somebody move better, eat better, breathe better, think better by different things that would put in place. So I think the things I apply to my kids is really showing them by example of how to lead a healthy, happy life. And by that, they see me going in an ice bath and they don't go in the ice bath, but they see me doing these things. They see me stretching, they see me breathing, they see me sitting down for a family meal, having a sense of community. They know what's right and wrong to eat. They know about exercise and they know about discipline of making your bed, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, it's about first and foremost, being a good human being. And then from being a good human being, having a health and wellness as a platform. And maybe six years ago, I just thought high performance was all about bigger, faster, stronger. That was it. Bigger, faster, stronger, bigger, faster, stronger. But it's finite and it's stressful and you burn out. Now I truly believe that high performance is built on a strong foundation of health and wellness. If you're healthy and well, you can run faster. You can be stronger. You can be more resilient. And I firmly believe in that. And I'm seeing the research and I've worked with the athletes to do that. And if you take your top, top high performers, I guarantee they're probably healthy and well, like physically and mentally, they're probably healthy well. So coming back to my children, it's about that education of thinking the right way, breathing the right way, prioritizing sleep, prioritizing that down regulation and making sure that they don't get upregulated or stimulated too much and making sure that we can guide them by the actions we do as parents as their guide 
as their Sherpa almost to a point of, well, we're probably always going to educate them. I still talk to my dad now and I'm 41, but it's a case of, I think, lead by example. And as a parent, we often forget how influential we are in our kids, not necessarily by the words we speak, but the actions that we do. Thanks, Michael. It is always a pleasure to talk shop with true experts like Michael Watts. This episode took a long while to get completed, but I am glad it is now finally out in the world because there's so much great advice in there from someone who really has seen it all as a coach. Thank you for hanging out with us today. Huge thanks to Michael Watts. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a follow. If you're feeling really sassy, leave a review. This has been the Dad Strength Podcast, hosted and produced by me, Jeff Gervitz, title music by Daniel Ross, additional music by Jeremy Glenn. Until next time, take care of yourself, man. <laughs>